Hello, hello. Oh my goodness. We took a week off and it's it hurt me. I forgot what your voice sounded like, actually. <laughs> you know, the so the quick planning backstory on last week is on Friday we were talking in Slack about recording and we said, yeah, let's record Saturday. And you said, as long as you don't mind recording after I go to a beer bash or something similar to that. Yeah, a, f- yeah, said, a four-year-old birthday party. <laughs> like I said, it was similar to Beer Bash. And I said, I don't mind. And then someone else in Slack char- uh, chirped up about your sobriety at that point in the night. And then you forgot forgot about it. Yeah, I mean, I will I will say that we didn't actually get too bashy. But I, I was in San Francisco last week. And so when I came home, I started packing and getting everything ready. And it just, it just uh, kind of... You know, oops. Right. Well, now it's Labor Day. It's 8 o'clock on Labor Day night. The irony. Exactly. Yeah. Let's get to it. What episode are we to? I think this may be number 200. Is that the case? Oh, my goodness. I know. Pop some champagne, I guess, right? Do you drink while we we, uh, record the podcast? I have a Coca-Cola on my desk right now. Hmm. It is number 200. Well, I'm going to do an official intro to the show then, given that it's 200. (laughs) You're listening to episode 200 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine, with my co-host, Kyle Daigle. Let's get to it. We have have a couple topics today, right? Yeah. So we we got our first uh, listener-sent audio series of questions, which I'm very happy about. Uh, why don't we cover that during the second half of the show? Okay. If, uh, that works for you. So during the first half of the show, so you and I were, I don't know if I tweeted this or we were talking in Slack about it or some combination, uh, thereof, but earlier in the, uh, earlier this week or last week, uh, I mentioned something about how building enterprise apps is about designing for people not to use software and not designing for people to use software. I'm thinking about it since then and how sort of fundamental that difference is between consumer software or software for businesses where it sort of acts like consumer software and what I'd consider to be enterprise software where the objective is quite the reverse of consumer software. You know, when you write consumer software, the goal is to make the person happy and more effective at their job. And usually with enterprise software, the goal is to have someone stop doing something. And I'm like (laughs) grossly simplifying this, but... You know, I think that I think that at least for this conversation, this is sort of true. So, I think it's a good topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, when I, I saw you tweet it, and I was or something along those lines, and I was like, "Damn, that makes good sense." <laughs> yeah. So, have you written what wh- what I would consider sort of enterprise software? So, software that a business pays for that's meant to make them more money by sort of either affecting what people do or, you know, in a positive way or stopping them from doing something, um, you know, that, that maybe isn't, isn't contributing to the, uh, the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, I've written what I would call B to B to C, <laughs> uh, you know, software that's, that the business buys and the business is using it to affect change for its consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really written like say, a CRM tool or something that's pretty just B2B, you know? Um, yeah, it's very different. So, so 
let me tell you like the the brief anonymized backstory behind the tweet because I think it'll I think it'll help this conversation. So this past week, uh, or maybe a week and a half ago now, I, I we went to production on a, a software uh, platform that I've been working on for a while now, maybe five months or something. And uh, the short version of it is that it's a sort of an automated uh, sourcing platform, sourcing as in um, purchasing. So an automated sourcing platform that um, reaches out to suppliers that the company would have um, reason to think would be a match to be the right supplier for a purchasing need that they have. And, and these purchasing needs come up, you know, hundreds of times a day, right? So it's a market making kind of need. And the, the interesting bit about the platform is that, I mean, I think there are many things that are interesting, but one of the interesting things is that we launched without a web interface to start with. So like the MVP, we literally cut the web client from the MVP on purpose because, um, the web client is sort of like the backup backup case. So the default case is that everything happens without a purchase person touching anything, right? So that the profiles about who's going to get marketed to or sourced, you know, that those get created dynamically based on history. And then the, the actual, uh, searching and matching happens dynamically. And then the communication by email, which is the primary communication vehicle happens dynamically. And then the unsubscribes and changes to the profiles happen actually through clicks in emails. And then the reporting on it also happens, um, on a schedule by email. Um, so the, the sort of two MVP clients are, in the first case, it's a sort of an integration with a legacy system. And then in the second case, it's a series of, uh, email templates that have in them links that are the vast majority of the actions that either the suppliers or the buyer would ever take. And, uh, that's the MVP product, so to speak, because most of the, because if, if it gets to the place where the, either the the uh, supplier or the buyer has to actually like take action through the web interface. Like things have sort of gone wrong, <laughs> not, not, not necessarily gone wrong, but it's sort of missing the point. Yeah. Right. Which is like massive automation of this thing that either people do poorly or don't do, or if they do it, it's expensive. So, you know, that series of decisions I thought was so interesting because it runs counter to, I think what a lot of people that either write software or think about writing software think about, as what software is. Um, unless you primarily write software for big companies, in which case th this sounds like your daily job. So anyways, that's sort of the backstory. That's what I was working on. And, 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 uh, I, I thought it'd be a good topic to sort of think through, you know, what the implications are of that. So any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's what's it's really interesting to me just because you know I, I, where I'm at now working primarily on like a developer tool there's a lot of things that we go you know oh well we're gonna make the system work this way because it's you know how we think the system should work um, you know and and we're gonna sort of just make some sane defaults and and, and let that be that but at the end of the day, I do think that most of the apps I use on a daily basis or services, I guess, tend to 
hmm, placate the user, you know? Um, yeah, not, placate's a good word. Not necessarily, like, want to take a strong stance. And I hate to use the word opinionated because I, I think that's a little bit overused and it's lost its meaning. But instead of just saying, nope, this is exactly how you're going to use this, like, and in the process, we're going to sort of do all this extra work for you behind the scenes, you know, for free to make your experience, you know, better or more thorough uh, or whatever. But I honestly can't think in my head of a service that I use on a daily basis that, you know, that is new um, or it has a sort of quasi unique workflow that is simplifying like my day to day. So like email is simple, right? I no longer have to write a letter, put a stamp on it and move it along, you know, and the interface is this really gross, complex, (laughs) uh, you know, system. And then there's a client on top of that, that talks to this really gross, complex system or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's not ideal, but I'm trying to think like, what is a good example of a publicly available resource? Maybe Dropbox. I think CodeShip is a good example Yeah, or any CI service. Right, because like the, it's primarily just doing things in the background, and while I don't necessarily think that it's opinionated, so I, I don't think that that part matches what you said. I do think that it matches the idea that the the most of the benefit happens with you not looking at it. That's sort of the point. That the only time you know I look at the code ship um, interface or that you know any CI system interface is in the exception case. Right, that by default it's just chugging along, doing its job, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the so. Like, is the human interaction a call out in the exception case, or is the computer being invoked to do something in the exception case? That's sort of the that's sort of the fork in the road, I think, to think about. And most of the software I work on now tends to be where humans get involved, but as but to handle exceptions that the software can't handle itself. Right. But for the most part, it's just going to go about its work without ever asking anyone for anything. And then, you know, so if it does a thousand units of work, maybe one out of a thousand times, it's going to ask for help. And I think, you know, CodeShip clearly wouldn't be that percentage, but it's going to sort of yell at you, hey, something's up, you know, come take a look one out of 20 times or something. But most of the time, it's just going to sort of chug along. It's, you know, in, our, in, in this app's case, it builds the documentation, it deploys to staging, it deploys to production it you know uh, sends notifications to github it you know does all these things that are nice and i think my my sort of thesis on this and the reason i think it's a good topic is that i think that most developers would serve their users well and certainly the companies that they're working for well if they thought more about how can we go to that model where the person is the exception handler not the computer um and I, and I sort of suspect that there's sort of a development methodology that you could bake around that, right? Which is like, okay, every single time the person gets involved, it's like a giant failure point, right? Where yeah. the, like expense skyrockets, quality goes to hell, you know, everything goes bad. So, you know, every seam that we, like, we, we think a lot about seams between the software and other software, but I don't think that we think of the seam between software and person as the sort of primary failure condition. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. As you're saying this, Tom Preston Warner a couple of years ago wrote about readme-driven development, which I think is kind of quasi-related to this. I mean, the idea basically, like, you're writing this so 
the people either using the system, the tool, or the developers in the system or the tool have a better idea of sort of knowing what you know interaction that will need to be taken with the application in order for it to do its job. Um, and I, I I think that's slightly more on track is instead of sort of defining all of the like you said um, system integrations, you know, focus much more on you know there is a workflow here and the only input to the workflow is say the dates and the city that you want to have a hotel, you know? Um, right. And mm-hmm. that is it, you know, and, and maybe there's a, an assumption that you have the ability to pay for it um, versus, you know, you know, people should be able to book for hotel rooms and, you know, they need to be able to book with, you know, they need to be able to find individual hotel rooms and all this other crap and all these other sort of like web use cases of now they need to be able to sort and filter and all this other stuff. Like, I think it's interesting when web apps, you know, try to do the best they can with sorting and filtering, etc. before you, you ask it to, you know, um, mm-hmm. like one comes to mind is Hipmunk. Um, Hipmunk is a travel uh, search tool, and they like have created their own little uh, you know way of sorting the results. Uh, I believe they call it misery or something like that. Like you know, uh, let's let's weigh everything and then choose what we think is are the least miserable uh, you know right. flights or whatever. And I think that's a very interesting you know choice for the system, um, since you know the exception would be. Oh no! I I only need the cheapest flights or whatever, and then you'd go in and you'd you know make a change or whatever. Because I don't think exception always needs to be like the system didn't do what you like. The system broke. You know, it could be the system yeah, didn't sure. do what what I expected it to do. Um, or there are some things that systems can't do yet. You know, like right, right now, like let's. I hate to use Uber as an example, but like for Uber's business, they clearly see the driver as the exception handler for the car not being able to drive itself. Yeah. But like at some point that won't be true. And I think every business is basically has this idea. If you think through it, where the people are involved temporarily in every process they're involved in. Yeah. And the question is just when they won't they be. It was really funny actually on the way, on the way from San Francisco or from the San Francisco airport to San Francisco proper. I had an Uber driver and that we had a really long discussion about that actually just about how like, you know, the system right now is basically attempting to, you know, connect a driver, someone who can move, uh, you know, this piece of convenience, this, <laughs> you know, this thing that can move yeah. Kyle from the airport to the GitHub office. Uh, but once that's not necessary, then what is the value? Like, what is the system that you're providing for that driver? If the, if that even needs to exist, like, you know, is it sort of a concierge type thing? Is it just completely gone altogether? You know, um, it's, it's interesting when you just go to the bare bones of the system, because for Uber, like in a way, the driver is an exception to the system, you know, like if, if the driver does anything but a perfect job, <laughs> it sort of breaks everything down. It breaks the expectations, and then Uber has to deal with all this other crap. Like, my driver took me the wrong route, and my drivers didn't pick me up on time. They couldn't find me, all this other stuff. Um, well, I think you can abstract the driver. And, and, and if, forget just, I mean, we could use Uber or any other example, I think, yeah, and it yeah, worked yeah. fine. So you can abstract the sort of the person that's doing almost anything is certainly something as... Uh, repetitive, I think, as uh, labor centric as driving, but I think most jobs would fit this, you know, fit into this category. I'm going to say, and if you just sort of abstract them into services, right, and you say, okay, like, 
what what are the performance characteristics of this service? You know, how expensive is it per call? How fault tolerant is it? How fault uh, centric? You know, how many errors is it going to create? Um, you know, what's the latency on it? Like, it's not hard to think about the job that a person is doing inside of a business's process in the same terms that we think about. Like, it's not hard at all to think about it in the same terms as we think about software services or hardware services that are sort of inside of our stack. And I think that what I have for really a number of years now been thinking about, but I think I'm accelerating my thinking about it and really focusing intently on it is, is formalizing this idea and saying, okay, like... Every single uh, touch point that a person has to the system, and I'm not talking about like the web client as a touch point. I'm talking about like this specific form, right, that they're submitting as a touch yeah. point. Mm-hmm. That that is uh, a service that's being provided by them. Your example with Hipmunk was really good, right? The the service that's being provided is like saying what hotel is acceptable. Right. So just abstract, sort of abstract that idea into a service. And right now, you know, a person needs to provide that. But at the very least, we can unbundle all those things that the people are doing and just have the people do the parts that the people need to, which I think you did a good job of explaining Hitmonk does. Mm -hmm. And then eventually some of those parts that people can only do, you know, you can have the people do less often. Um, And I think this idea of less often is important too. Like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah. right? Right. Like, uh, most of the things that I work on, um, a person wouldn't have to do the task most of the time, whether that's 50% or 99%, uh, is less the point than most of the time they wouldn't. And we just have to have to have a way to sort of get them involved in the case that a person's needed. And I think that the idea that you want to design systems that can sort of have multiple service providers almost have like dependency injection for the, the service where, the dependency can be a person or can be a, a software service is like, it sort of sounds like our, you know, architecture astronaut until you actually work in these systems. And you're like, no, this is an architecture astronaut. This is actually a very easy way to think about enterprise systems. And, um, at least in my experience, I don't, I don't see that as the default way that other developers think about things, but, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, no, I don't. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I, I think that it's. I think there's a little bit of like a universal truth under all this, you know. And and so I think that when you when you tweeted it, it really just sort of struck home that of course, like we're 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 always worried about the abilities of our systems, the abilities of our computers, the abilities of our mobile phones, and all this other stuff. But like at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, all you're trying to do is, you know, if I could if I could install an app that just basically could do one thing for me without any interaction like say order my groceries every single week you know what i mean just Mm -hmm. because it knows however it knows it knows you know what i mean it's following me on facebook and so it knows i like coke or whatever you know that's that's way more valuable to me than um you know having to go to the grocery store every single week and you know buy the groceries and choose what i want and what am i in the mood for or whatever and so somewhere in between there there's you know a service like where I live, like Peapod, right? Peapod is a you know online grocery service where I can go and order what I want and it comes to my house, but I still need to do all the ordering. And so I think to me, I think we focus a lot on the like, you know, how do I connect these two APIs to kind of do something interesting or the Apple Watch, you know, how do I you know use this silly little watch to, you know, do this one little interesting thing. And it's not so much that 
you know, how can I make it so you basically are getting a, a tremendous amount of value, but maybe you have the least amount of, uh, you know, exception cases or the least amount of, I would almost say involvement, you know, as possible. Yeah. I mean, what's your competition? So I like to think about this idea a lot. So is for a given software service that I write, is my competition perfect or is it an existing system or is it a person doing some manual process or some cocktail of all those, of those things? And when the competition is a person, the 99.9% of the time in all the work that I've done, the person is awful at the job. If, if you sort of, uh, if you put the gla- your glasses on and just try to evaluate sort of the quality of their job and on the metrics I said before, like how expensive, you know, is the effort? What's the latency? You know, what's the throughput? Um, you know, how many exceptions are there? How fault tolerant? You know, usually they do pretty well at fault tolerant and they do pretty bad at everything else, basically. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> um, the way that I like to think about writing software in those situations is I just have to be better than that. Like... Anything that's better than that is adding value. And usually you can get way better than that. But I think that where engineers can go wrong, and I see this on Twitter every, like all the time, and I think I'm now understanding why it bugs me. Engineers will make jokes constantly on Twitter about how computers are awful and stupid and broken and everything. It's Everything's awful, right? It's sort of like as common as the uh, recruiters are terrible joke. And it rubs me sort of equally poorly. Like, I don't like, I don't like that joke either. And I think that the reason is that like, it it just shows sort of a misunderstanding of everything around us. Like people are even more busted in most ways, I think (laughs) than most software, Yeah. but we don't, you know, we don't walk around. At least I hope we don't all walk around and go, Oh my God, people are just awful. They suck at everything. It's a wonder they get from here to the grocery store every day. Right. Cause like, (laughs) that'd be ridiculous to have that point of view about the world. You say like, no, well, I think that the good version of this thought is you say, no, you know, they're human and they're imperfect and got to take the good with the bad. And I think that it shows sort of like a lack of maturity, not to mm, bring that point of view from life over to computers and say like, you know what, they're made by people and people are imperfect and therefore they're going to be imperfect. But the question is, are they better than the alternative? Yeah. So have you seen this? Have you seen this uh, new project from Microsoft? Like M, which one? It's like I think it's called M. It's uh, it's like a combination of fancy hands and AI. It's like mm-hmm. you can like message it, and if the AI can figure it out, the AI just like does it, you know. So if it's like, give me a reservation at this restaurant at seven thirty. So like, presumably, right? It's gonna go. Okay, is this restaurant right. on Open Table? If it is, okay, just use Open Table's APIs to book it, and then respond automatically. No human interaction, right? Yeah. And then maybe it's not. Maybe it's one of those swanky restaurants that isn't on Open Table or whatever, and you have to call physically call. And so then you know Facebook fishes it out to a human. The human calls, does it, and then enters it in, and you know you still have the reservation or whatever. Yeah, exact same idea, right? They just make an interface that it it calls out to the person when it needs to, right? And so, you know, it's a very interesting project that's, I guess, in limited release in San Francisco or something. But, like, Hmm. um, their idea is, like, all right, well, AI can't do everything we need, and it's too expensive to only use humans. So let's just mash them together. And to the end user, it's going to look like a single sort of, 
I don't know. I'll use the term hive mind. <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah. well, I don't think, I mean, like I only have my own limited little uh, experience, at, but in my experience at, in the last mm, four years, but, but it's it, it, especially in the last two years, things are rapidly accelerating towards that as the default way that everything's built that I see. Yeah. So, Oh, like I'll give like a little personal story from this week, which I, I think I mentioned to you by text message earlier this week, but I think it's some version of it's okay to share. So I, uh, uh, one of the businesses that I am involved in is a, is a, um, uh, we'll call it a sa- like a sales business, an outsource sales business. So a business that I work with, uh, outsources a particular type of sales that they do to, to my company. And, uh, the sales isn't terribly different than most other types of sales. I think it, you know, sort of medium ticket sales, Mm -hmm. but anyways, so this past week I released a production, totally separate thing than we were talking about before a sort of an automated process for how the inside sales function works for what they outsource to me. And it goes something like this. It automatically scans for leads from some advertising sources that it uses to find leads when it sees one, it, like you said before, it sort of does a little bit of math, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a simple algorithm that tries to sort out if this is a good prospect or not. Then it uh, sees if it can get the, their contact information, which it, it generally can. Um, and then if those things are true, it sends an introduction email to them that's like very well done and nicely written, has trackable and all that jazz and copies a virtual, uh, copies fancy hands actually. And says and has fancy hands follow up with them if necessary to schedule the sort of real person to person sales call. And then fancy hands has access to the uh, Google apps, um, calendar for the salespeople and can schedule into their calendar into open spaces, the calls. And no person is involved for my company. Yeah. Zero until the sales call. Right. And then the sales call is the part that, you know, can't have a person not do. Um, but a hundred percent of the work up to that point now is automated. And I think it's this idea again, where, you know, the salesperson is the service that I'm calling out to, but that everything else I said, you know, cause I've had this business for a bit and I saw where things were breaking down and it was that, you know, maybe 40% of the prospects were getting called quickly when they expressed interest, not a hundred percent. Well, now it's a hundred percent or, you know, 50% of those that were called, there was a trouble scheduling something. And then, you know, the, the period of time elapsed where things were hottest, you know? So I just said, okay, how do I apply software to all these bits so that there was like zero fall through in those steps Yeah, and, and just use the people for what they're good at. So, you know, I, I, that's a long way to say, I think, that I don't think that these are exceptions. And in fact, I don't think, I think you did a smart thing by bringing up that project M because I think that it's not even enterprise E. I think it's just that enterprises care about time more frankly. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and people, uh, I think people care about time too, but not, not sort of to the degree and with the leverage that businesses have. So, you know, I wonder what the I, I wonder what the implications are for those of us that are like developing and designing software. Cause I don't think that the same skills like the UI UX mindset. I don't, 
I think I think some of it translates over, but I, I think that there are some missing tools, frankly, mm-hmm. that you need to have in your toolbox to build software when that's the goal. Yeah. You know, when you see the person as just another service. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think it feels dirty to people somehow. Do you think that's true? Um, like, like, like sort of abstracting the person into a, a service feels off. <laughs> it's, it makes me laugh just cause I feel like it's what happens like in every other industry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so like, yes, I guess it fe- I can understand people feeling a little bit dirty or, uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm bringing something of value to the table. So deal with it sort of, you know, mentality. But I, I think that, um, I think ultimately though, that what this is showing us is that we've sort of fell into the, okay, we have the front end people who deal with the web UI and we have the back end people who deal with like the databases and the surface calls and whatever else. Right. Um, and that's not really true as much anymore as is, but if you, you know, if you obscure that one step more and just say, you know, we're just trying to solve a problem here. Maybe that's a product manager, you know, question mark. Maybe there's like some other piece of person here or another set of skills where it's, you know, clearly being able to say, no, this should just be an email newsletter. This should have no web component at all. You know, that that'll be good enough. Um, I think that there's a, there's a very interesting dilemma that happens inside of what you just said. Cause I think you, you're right that in a, in a perfect world, it's a product manager. Like if I could, if I could wave a magic wand, it'd be a product manager that was making an integrated decision about, you know, what the actual end goal is and therefore, you know, what should we do? Whether, I mean, and by product manager, I'm saying like, that's the name in a software context. And we could come up with a similar sort of integrated responsibilities name for non-software business context. Um, the problem and, uh, at least the problem that I've seen is that there are very few people that currently have the job with that title or the same responsibility in a non-software software business that have the technical wherewithal to actually know what's possible. Yeah. Um, so you kind of end up in a weird jail, right? Where the people that would know what you can do and how don't have like the integrated understanding of the goal and the people that probably shouldn't do have the integrated understanding of the goal don't have the ability to sort of envision ways to solve it that are fundamentally different than the present. And I'm like obviously grossly simplifying the types of people on both sides because there are clearly people that can do both, but that's not the usual case. I don't think. Yeah. At least hasn't been in what I've seen. Yeah. I think that's why people think it's gross because people are complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean the, the, we, we've covered this on one previous show, but I think that it yet again, like many conversations sort of leads you down the path to the power concentrating into sort of technocrats. Yeah. Right. And like all roads lead there. So like big shock, this one does. Um, but that clearly feels gross. Like, I mean, anything, anything where power continues to concentrate into a very, very small group of elite people is gross, I think. But, but I mean, whether it's gross or not, I think it doesn't say anything to whether, uh, you know, someone listening to this show or me or you or whatever 
needs to think hard about the role of software and how to design smart systems. Yeah, I'm really yeah. intrigued just about making my job useless. Well, I mean, you have to sort of embrace that. Yeah, no, I'm right? like, like not being. I'm not even being sarcastic. Just like I mean, you know, I think we've put a lot of that into like AI, right? Like in giant air quotes, like oh well, once we have AI, this won't be a problem anymore. You know, or to a bunch of different problems, but. It's, uh, you know, I think that we're probably a lot closer than we think, not to necessarily having like true, true AI, but to mock that experience, you know? Um, well, my, my prediction on that is that not that the job of the developer goes away, but rather the job of the only, the developer only goes away. Yeah. And I mean, like for, for people that know the kind of work I do, I acknowledge how, absurdly self-serving this is going to sound so fine but like what you can see happening like i already see it happening is that the development itself gets so efficient for you know the everyone really that's a developer and certainly those that are quite skilled at it that it uh, it gets combined and done by the product manager responsibility like it's not hard to foresee a world where most products can be owned and built by the same person. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I'm like simplifying slightly, but I mean, I think that this is where sort of when you combine that thought with service oriented architecture, which, you know, I think people have various points of view about, um, and sentiments, but if you combine service oriented architecture with this idea of like the combined product manager, developer, technocrat guy, gal, you can imagine a world with a bunch of solo product owners, even in an organization. I don't want to say like GitHub because that makes it too personal, but like another software company, similar size to GitHub, you could imagine sort of a constellation of these combo business programmer people yeah, that are interfacing through you know, Amazon sort of structured this way. I think actually that are sort of interfacing through, uh, you know, APIs for lack of a better way to say it, where each of, you know, each of them are sort of conceiving and building the thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, which I think, you know, t- to your point before says that either your job's going to get way better like you, Kyle, or is going away. One of the two. Right. At least there's a, at least there's a, a good path. <laughs> right. Like that's I'll never a- forget. This is like, uh, this is a great story, I think. And so like when I was in high school, right. Um, I was involved in some sort of like, technology something role I, they used to have a name but like the idea would be that like the, the school system doesn't have enough people in it and so you would go and like help do like the lowest rung of of help tickets you know and so one of the lowest rung of help tickets was setting up this new computer for the attendance office because the attendance office had three people working in it whose sole job was to get the attendance from the teachers and then call home and be like, Kyle wasn't in school today. Why wasn't he in school? Right. Mm-hmm. So that was three, you know, people who probably were only working half time, but like, I think it's pretty darn close to full time. And so I get this ticket where I have to go into the office because the school has purchased, um, or the school system has purchased some sort of software that basically takes the attendance from the, you know, the, the electronic education system that the school's already using and places an automated call home, basically. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's like blah 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 your kid's out like press one to do x press two to do y or whatever and then like the system would automatically just sort of go all right this is no big deal or yes like a human should call back and like talk to the parent or whatever and so i remember going in to set this up and just like the look on these these people's faces when like i was explaining what this was because i was like oh this is gonna be awesome like it's gonna be so much less work it's gonna be so much easier for everyone um but you know the translation of that is that these people's like 80 percent of these people's jobs is about to be handled by this like really crummy compact with like two modems in it you know and so to me it was like very interesting because you know that part of the system should definitely have been automated right there was nothing interesting or human complex between take data input into a computer place a phone call home like that was the most interesting like part of the problem from a technical perspective and then the last step is just like now look at the exceptions like look at like the parent that said no my kid is at school you know and then figure out what's going on or you know this kid's been out for 10 days straight or whatever you know deal with those cases that a human needs to interface with but um but it went from you know three people with that were making real money and had real benefits to a computer program that probably cost the town like five grand a year or something it's interesting to see how much resistance there still is in the community to that simple kind of underlying pretty black and white reality of what soft what software's role is in almost every situation it enters yep because like i see another thing i see on twitter frequently is is this this uh what's the word for these things by the way Are, are these tropes twitter tropes is that what people call these sure Okay. So another, another Twitter trope is, I hope I I don't get this wrong. Trope is one of those words that like, I think is easy to misuse. I feel like I may be that guy. might be that guy. (laughs) Anyways. So a a common Twitter trope is people making a snarky comment that says where the punchline is. And remember the whole point of software is that someone's got to use it. This is just a tool to make a person's job easier, better. And like, I bet I see that joke like once a day on Twitter and it's wrong a hundred percent of the time. Like <laughs> the software almost never is that it's almost always existing so that a person doesn't do something. Not so that it makes it their life better. That's, that's like fundamentally misunderstanding how software is used. And I think that, I, I think that the reason, I think that there's a tight relationship between that trope and what I see as, as a too slow adoption of, uh, you know, the people are the exception sort of mm-hmm. callback dependency injection back, you know, backup plan. Um, in that we don't, yeah, uh, it, it's a little rough to sort of stare what software is in the face and still kind of have the, you know, uh, political perspective that I think most people that write software have. Um, and I think the reckoning on that is interesting, right? Like, like, can you be a non sort of libertarian? Let's like sort of put those, you know, that crew in a corner say like, okay, I'm not a libertarian. Can I be a, you know, socially liberal software developer and look in the eye, the reality of what it's doing and, and therefore make good decisions about what my job is, you know, like, like how do I reconcile these wor- worlds? Because, you know, the way that I see them reconciled in those tropes is not effective. It's sort of not understanding how destructive, so destructive, constructive. I mean, depends on your point of view, but you know how powerful software is. 
Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that could be like four podcasts. I think it's a good topic. Because I think it's rich. I think it's like rich with interesting things to think about. Yeah. Um, At the very least, I don't think it has an answer. Has some... Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. Well, this is like, you know, kind of like a all roads lead to the technocrats sort of winning in a gross power grab. I think almost all roads lead to hating capitalism and seeing no alternative. Like that's like, it's like a similar destination in, in you know, these sorts of conversations. <laughs> but anyhow, speaking of let's do a, let's do a sponsorship read. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the most appropriate one to get that segue. <laughs> uh, let's do Linda seems uh, apropos this topic. Okay. Uh, Y'all know lynda.com. They've sponsored before. Happy to have them back today. Uh, Lynda is the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash Ruby on Rails. Some of the courses that they've recommended that relate to this podcast are uh, RSpec Testing Framework with Ruby, Code Clinic Ruby, Ruby Essential Training, and Localization for Developers. So those are software development-related courses, and they have many, many others. So, for example, uh, the JavaScript library is quite good. The CSS, SAS, HTML, all the front-end side is uh, pretty good, too. Um, and you, know, you can also use Linda to learn about non-technical things, whether it's negotiation skills or you know how to manage better or public speaking, really you name it. And I think to our conversation before, the idea that the successful programmer will be the person that crosses over, not yep. to the front side necessarily. I actually think this is a good podcast topic too. Which is like this this front back like maybe the the idea of a full stack developer is less about front uh, you know, front end, back end, and more about business tech. Yep. Uh, you know, anyways, uh, that was not part of the, uh, the ad, but I think Linda is a great resource for someone that's sort of coming to grips with that world and trying to manage their career in such a way that they're, you know, full stack business, uh, a business, uh, programmer. Anyhow, with lynda.com, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, stream thousands of video courses on demand, learn at your own pace, take notes and refer to them later, even download the tutorials and watch them later on your iOS or Android device. Go uh, go today to lynda.com slash Ruby on Rails and you'll get uh, a free 10-day trial. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. All right. Uh, should we jump to our listener questions? Yeah. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. This is a wicked low rent way to do this. Are you up for a wicked low rent way to do this? Yes. <laughs> yes, I definitely <laughs> am. It seems better than me editing later tonight. That's, that's <laughs> the uh, that's the competition that it's got. So here's what I'm going to do. So we have uh, a series of questions from Colin Boy. You know, he says his last name in the question, so I'm going to defer the pronunciation of his last name to him. We have some questions from Colin, and uh, I'm going to cut right to it. I'm going to hold my phone up to the mic. See how it <laughs> like I said, wicked, <laughs> wicked low, low rent. Here we go. Hello, 
Hi guys, my name is Colin Rubert. I've recently graduated from an online boot camp and looking to land my first gig. With that, I've got a few ideas on topics that would be great to hear from your guys' point of view. So the biggest one is how do you land your first gig as a web developer when you don't live in a tech hub city? I currently live about 300 miles north of Chicago and our area is not known for having very many tech jobs or in specifically web developer jobs. So for me to go and meet people and, and network and try and find stuff, I have to travel 300 miles to visit Chicago, which I do on a monthly basis to go to a Ruby meetup. So when looking for a job, the majority of the time, especially entry-level stuff, is you get in because you know somebody. So how could I, being so far away from a tech center, start to get to know people that I can network and find my first gig? Hey, that worked out pretty well. Wow. Right? That wasn't bad. No. Like, are you with me? Like, not worth even playing with later? You know, I mean... (laughs) Hey, hey, there's. You ever met a rhetorical question? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll see. Uh, let's get to the question. So I think this is a good one. First, uh, let's just acknowledge how far 300 miles is. That's the first thing that I thought in my head. <laughs> so I did a quick map search when he said this, when I was listening right before I called you. That's like uh, here to just north of DC. Yeah, that's intense. So it's like, like what, ba- five hours? I think it's Baltimore from where we are. Oh, boy. <laughs> that is, That's some dedication. That is far. Maybe maybe, maybe you should have like figured out what languages are more local. <laughs> Just said like Can- F- Canadians. F-Ruby. I think Canadians Canadians more local. <laughs> <laughs> so learn French Canadian and then... <laughs> I don't think French Canadian, though. That's not more local. No, all right. Oh, my okay, goodness. so... An- Enough jokes. Yeah, that, that's Baltimore. Yeah, I'm not so mocking. From- I'm, I'm more just, uh, I'm more amazed at the level of dedication because, like, I could drive to Boston, right, for a, for a Ruby meetup because they have a pretty active community there. And that's, you know, an hour and 20 minutes, maybe. It's like 82 miles, and it's just like, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, you, 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 would, you would be such a whiner. I would whine the whole drive up. And so 300 <laughs> miles. I'm really hoping it's, it's like 150 miles total, like each way in 300 total instead of 300 miles each way because if it's 300 miles each way wowzers colin seemed pretty he seemed pretty clear that it was 300 miles oh my goodness gracious wow i feel like we should buy him a gift card for gas or something no kidding okay so let's let's give some advice on this question so it uh comment one is uh colin if you're willing to go 300 miles once a month to get involved in the community like you have a big leg up on many people mm-hmm. that are looking for work, right? That is a kind of dedication that is uncommon. Uh, and I think most people don't even have the ability to do that, let alone the commitment. Um, so, uh, I think it can be quite easy when you're sort of just getting involved and you see, you know, the glossy presentation of people online and, and sort of the self-selection of those who publish being the people that, that, you know, either like to write or have, uh, figured out what to say pretty cleanly and feel like, you know, you're way behind. And I'm guessing just even from the way that he asked that question that you're less behind than you think. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like fake it till you make it. Like everyone else is not Amen. as far ahead as it may, as it may feel like, you know, from your current place. Yep. You, you agree with that? Oh, totally. Totally. 
150%. You know, just asking this question, like, sets you out, you know, sets you apart, I would say. You know, and so I think that as someone who also, you know, was sort of like when I when I was looking for my first gig, my first real job and not like a freelance thing or before I would probably even like really grok the word freelance, you know, it was just like, oh, this person wants me to build them a website. So I'll do it in college, like totally unrelated to my major, like that sort of thing. I mean, when I when I ended up getting my first job, it was really just like I looked for jobs um, and I like was dumb enough to think I was qualified. <laughs> and so I just applied yep. and then I got one of them. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I don't want to make light of that, but it, my, the point of that little tiny story is like, you know, there's a lot of times where when you're looking for this first gig that you're so caught up in the idea of, oh man, the numbers, you know, like I barely know what I'm doing. There's another hundred people who are being, re- um, you know, released into the workforce and they also, you know, barely know what they're doing. But there's, you know, student A and student B and they're just really good. They could go anywhere and do anything. And I'm just a, a schmo. Like that's just crap, you know? Um, that might be true, I guess, but generally speaking, if you're asking these questions, I don't think it is. And so, I mean, my advice to you would be um, coming from a remote perspective, especially, is um, go online and find companies near you in Chicago if you're interested in doing on site or moving. Um, if you're interested in just remote, you can try sites like We Work Remotely um, mm-hmm. and find find companies that you are like actually interested in working at. Um, cause the next step is kind of hard to fake, but when you're, when you're just sort of trying to get this new job, I mean, if you're interested in the company that you're looking to talk to, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, starting a conversation with someone that works there or coming prepared with some information about, you know, sort of how you think the product should work or how it should be positioned in the community or how it should be positioned in the workplace or using it for a week and then bringing feedback. All of those little tiny things I think will set you apart immensely and show the sort of, mm, I hate to use the word innate skill, but like what, you know, the skill that you have that maybe isn't in code to say, I can see a problem and I have some solutions here that I think fit the problem. And then these companies will be willing to potentially, you know, invest in you in the long term because you're sort of starting the conversation without jumping straight to the nitty gritty of, you know, somewhat objective coding exercises or whatever that next step is. I mean, so I think that's a great way to sort of cheat the system when you're coming out of a boot camp is just say, Hey, you know, yep, I have this base set of skills, but I saw that you're building an online ticketing system and I used it for a week and I'm really interested in why you chose to use priority this way, you know, and here's where I think there's some deficiencies or whatever. Like, let's have a chat. I think that's like a, a total disarming, uh, you know, question uh, or sort of experience, I guess, with whoever you're, uh, you know, whoever you're trying to get this job from that I think would definitely get you in to do an actual interview, um, you know, which is just the goal here is just to get past that screener of the other, I don't know, 20 people that are, hey, I just left the boot camp and here's my resume. Good luck. Have fun. Yeah, I think I think I would ha- like my trite answer to this would be um, decide that you live on the Internet. Never go to Chicago again for a meetup. <laughs> like, in other words, like, you know, you live where, like, uh, you're closer. Like, Co- Colin knows me better 
now because of the internet than he ever would have in Chicago. I'm positive yeah. of that. Right? So, like, just embrace this as your the place that you are work-wise. And, um, you know, I, I think that that... I think if you sort of inter- like comp- go all in on that strategy and say, I'm going to be the best sit- you know, community member of the internet community of web developers um, because I don't have another community that's practical for me, that if you just do that one thing, you're going to do... You know, you're going to do great. Just take the time you're driving back and forth and invest it in the community. And, uh, you know, you, you won't feel like you're missing out at least, you know, at least maybe not, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be a little more lonely at first, but, uh, maybe it feels like you don't have the training wheels of like going to the meetup and sitting in the place with the pizza and having the beer with the other people. But, you know, so it maybe takes a little bit more, uh, assertiveness on your part to make that work. But clearly Colin's assertive, so that should work fine. Okay, should we play the second question? Yeah, do it. Okay. My second question is, how do you bridge that zero to one year professional experience gap? Many job postings are looking for two plus years experience, but it seems like the average junior level position is at least one year professional experience. So how does a boot camp graduate or just a recently graduated student bridge that zero to one year professional experience? Topic number three. How do you attract... Okay. I'm, I'm going to answer this one real simply. Ignore those requirements. Bing, 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 bing. I mean, and I don't mean sort of ignore. I mean, totally ignore them. They don't matter. They, they, they didn't matter to the person that wrote it, frankly. Like, you're, you're projecting onto them an amount of attention that, and meaning to the year's experience that they didn't mean, probably. And even if they did, don't matter. And, you know, hey, this cuts both ways. So, like, that can sound like good news, and I think it clearly is good news for someone that's just getting in. The, the you know, other side of the pancake on this one is that um, if you have lots of experience and aren't that good, it's not going to help you out that much, um, at least in, in some situations. So, uh, I, I don't know. I, it sounds like you agree, Kyle, but oh, I yeah. would just completely throw, out, throw that out. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, no, I agree completely. You know, and hey, if you you'll know when you you aren't cut out for the job, right? Like when they're asking for things that you don't believe that uh, you could do. One, you probably won't be able to fake it, and and so they probably wouldn't hire you. And two, you probably wouldn't want to take it anyway. So just don't sweat it. You know, if you're capable of doing something, then you're a good candidate for the job. And if you're not capable, you're not. And, and the correlation with years experience is loose at best. It's not nothing, but it's not it's not super high. All right. I think we're halfway through his question, so I think I should read a second sponsor. Okay. Not that there's any magic about sponsors halfway through, but halftime has a lot of ads. So <laughs> it's football season. <laughs> we're gonna have an ad right now. Okay, our second sponsor today is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. Create a cloud server in 55 seconds for as little as 5 bucks per month. DigitalOcean is built for developers and used by over 400,000 of them, including me. Now, uh, to be fair, I do not use DigitalOcean on my main projects now um, because I uh, am a little bit of a DevOps wimp. But I have for, I think, two projects, and I had quite a bit of success, mostly because the quality of their uh, documentation that's provided by the community is quite good. So I uh, just don't want to be inaccurate with that. 
Anyways, uh, the DigitalOcean solution is highly scalable to meet the demands of your growing application or business. You can even resize uh, droplets, that's the name for their uh, servers, to meet your needs as you grow. You can choose uh, whichever OS you'd like, and they have one-click install uh, for apps like Django, Rails, WordPress, Ghost, etc. All their servers are built on hex-core machines with dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage. Servers can have up to 20 CPUs, 64 gigs of RAM, and 640 gig of uh, SSD hard, uh, hard drive space. They have full-featured DNS management to easily manage your domains, and uh, auto backups and snapshots allow you to easily clone and deploy your servers. So head on over to DigitalOcean.com to uh, learn more, and when you sign up, make sure to use the code, what is our code? Ruby Podcast. So Ruby Podcast at checkout, you get 10 bucks credit. That's two months for their uh, entry-level plan. And uh, you get that for free just by using Ruby Podcast. So thanks to uh, DigitalOcean for supporting the show. Okay. So, so far, we're full of good news for Colin. One, he does not have to drive to Maryland and back <laughs> every month. <laughs> and he can ignore... Uh, the year's experience requirements and ads. Let's let's see what question three was. Okay. Track the attention of potential employers outside of the traditional means of resume and cover letters. Topic number four. How do you get started with open Uh-oh. source content? Oh. Hey, hey, hold hold on, Colin. <laughs> We're not. We haven't even <laughs> answered question three yet. Just come on. <laughs> okay, so qu- question three was how do you attract the attention of would-be uh, hiring managers outside of the usual ways. All right, I-, I jumped in on the last one, so why don't you take this one? Uh, skywriting. Skywriting is an effective <laughs> and inexpensive way. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, to be honest with this, uh, I-, I only kind of have one tip, and um, and that's pretty much to be authentic. Like. I think that, you know, you could try to shoot the moon and do some sort of open source project or some big sort of, like, solo project that it gets enough attention that it'll actually work in your favor to, you know, get the attention of hiring managers to be able to say, hey, that really cool thing, yeah, I built that by myself. Um, I don't like shoot the moon, uh, you know, strategies. I don't play hearts because of it. And so I think that, you know, the big the big tip here is just... You know, like I said before in the first uh, question, when you find a place that you actually want to work at, you know, if you're if you're so lucky, you know, just be honest and authentic in that initial email. Like the cover letter mm-hmm. is your the the question you're attempting to answer. In my opinion, is I want to work for you because of X, right? Not you should hire me because of Y. And they're two very different. Um, strategies to a cover letter and all of my cover letters um and i definitely advise people to do the same is to say you know the quick this is who i am and by quick i mean like two sentences you know maybe three sentences if you think it's really important without the, like the really crappy i'm looking for a interesting place to work that's solving hard technical problems where i can work as a le- like blah 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 just kill that and then go directly into you know I really want to work at GitHub because, you know, uh, or I really want to work at GitHub on their X, like on this sub portion of the product. Because, you know, 
that's where my passion lies. I always have worked on APIs or like whatever. And don't lie about it to get the job. That's not going to help you at all. But if you can go through these companies and do, you know, three or four or five cover letters that are in the email to the hiring manager or to whoever you're contacting, um, I think that that's a really easy way to get noticed above everyone who's sending the same exact cover letter to every single job. Um, I think the other thing too is uh, always feel free to ask for coffee. Um, I've done this a couple times and I know that some other people have had huge success in emailing either the hiring manager or someone in the division or even someone pretty high up in the area that you're trying to join um, and just say, Hey, you know, I'd love to get together and learn more about your company and you know, what you're working on or whatever. Um, I'm looking to get a job, but I'd love to sort of get some advice from you on what, you know, what might be good for working with you or just finding a job in the industry or whatever. Um, People generally love to help. Mm -hmm. And so it just requires you to ask in the worst case. It's so true. It's so true that people like to help. I, I couldn't agree more. And so I think that that's an easy kind of cheating way to, to get some more attention and some more information, which honestly could help you decide that you don't want to work there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but um, all that really takes usually is an email to say, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. Or can you help point me in the right direction or get coffee or do a Skype, you know, for like five minutes, 10 minutes. That'd be really helpful. Um, I don't think anyone has turned me down for that up to this point. So I think that I could, I think one way to summarize what, what you said and uh, what I would say is uh, step one is be human in your approach. Like let your personality and interests and strengths and individuality come through in the way you communicate by in your letter and your, phone calls and your Skype and your tweets and your what, what, however it is you're communicating, uh, don't, don't become some sort of robot version of yourself, be yourself. And the second is the flip of that, which is remember that you're just dealing with another person too. So treat them that way. You know, like in other words, I don't think you have to worry about finding some clever new way to find opportunities. I think just approach the opportunities that exist. Cause there are tons of great opportunities out there, um, in a different way. And that different way is to see each one as an individual opportunity that is solving real problems for real people where the hiring manager is a real person and they're interested in real people. And if you do that, you will look so different than everyone else that, you know, you'll, you'll stand out. And you know, your point about asking for help, I, I is so true. So I've been in like relatively prominent positions for a lot of the last 10 years. And I've had, oh man, you know, a hundred different people, I bet, uh, ask either to have a phone call or to go out for coffee or to get a drink or what I invite to a party or whatever it is. And I take up, take almost everyone up on it because you just never know, you know, you never know where things are going to go. And plus it's just nice to be friendly. And, uh, you know, I don't think other people in the positions that I've been in have, you know, fundamentally different opinions about it. Yeah, no. I mean, every time I go to a city or go to an event and somebody's like, hey, do you want to get coffee? The answer is almost always yes, because you just never, you never know, um, you know, where you're, those you're, t- you're you. tired from traveling, too. Yeah, so. yeah. But like those those things won't help, won't help immediately. But those are those seeds that you plant and you just never know if they're going to, you know, help you out in the future or if you're going to help that person out in a major way. Um, but it's always worth investing that time. I, and what's the worst thing that happens is you connect with a person and that's fun anyways. Uh, people. 
Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh oh. All right. Here, let's go to question uh, four. Okay. Contributions besides documentation. Documentation, although important, seems to be the number. Uh oh. <laughs> thing that people. Hold, hold, hold on. <laughs> Wait, Somebody's going to be doing some editing. <laughs> oh no. This is this is awful. Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? I feel like the well, rent is too money. damn high. Yeah, our the, the my low rent bragging uh, was was sure to run out eventually. Okay, let's re- <laughs> let's try this again. <laughs> now, th- th- we may start slightly uh before the question here. But. Topic number 4. How do you get started with open source contributions besides documentation? Documentation, although important, seems to be the number one thing that people recommend. But when people want to start getting into code and be able to show people and potential employers the code that they've contributed to, how does somebody get into a project that isn't as developed as uh, major Rails or Ruby-based gems? Personally, what I... (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Now should I? I think I should keep playing it. I thought he was done. Yeah, I, I, would, cut, I, I yeah. I cut Colin off. Here we go once again. What I've been doing with this is creating my own open source projects, and then allowing the students of the Firehose Project, my online boot camp that I attended, to participate and contribute to the project themselves. I would like to open this up to more people and start building upon this idea. But is there a good place for other people to start out with open source contributions on a little bit more developed applications? All right. I like this question. Um, So I'll kick off with it. Uh, Contribute to projects you use is, I think, is the easy answer here. Um, the, The like, so I think that's more often the right answer than write a new thing. Which can be interesting, you know, especially if it's small and solves your particular need. But I don't, I think that's fine. So I've done a lot of that and I think it's a perfectly fine thing to do. But if you're interested in community building, I think that, you know, look at the gems, not rails, not, you know, not the big high profile gems, but look at the other gems you're using, um, especially the ones that are popular and newer. And you will run across issues as you use it, either features that, you know, aren't there or are poorly documented or have tests, you know, have a bug and, and either the bug needs to get fixed or need better testing around it or both, or has a a performance issue. Like you're going to hit issues on the software you use. You do not have to go finding issues that you're not already encountering if you've got your eyes open. So just take a look at your gem files and the projects you're working on. If you're not working on projects, I would do that before I would contribute to open source. Because I don't think that you'd have the context necessary to do a great job in open source if you if you weren't sort of using those libraries or libraries like them in projects. And uh, as you come across real problems and real need in your use of those libraries, get involved. That's how I would do it. That's how I do do it. So I mean, that's I, I definitely practice what I preach there. You? I have two tips. Um, everything Sean said is tip zero. Uh, tip one is um, I found a nifty little tool called Code Triage, so codetriage.com. What it basically allows you to do is to sign up for those projects that you use on a regular basis, and you'll get a daily email that 
points to a single issue that is sometimes particularly old and sort of crufty and needs just some help getting it across the finish line. Um, so I signed up for, uh, let's see, bundler, pry, rack, and rails. Like those were all kinds of things I kind of used every day and I figured, oh, well, it'd be helpful if I can kind of poke at these, uh, even just to understand them more, even if I couldn't get code back into them. Um, and so that was pretty helpful. It, it does it with a bunch of different languages, a bunch of different projects. So that's just codetriage.com. That's pretty neat. Um, the other thing that's pretty interesting is um, libraries.io slash bus dash factor. Uh, you could probably Google that a little better. Uh, but it reminds me of one of those. Of those uh, <laughs> you see people tweet those ads in the uh, like for a job where the URL is 120 characters. Yeah, yeah. Just go to we are m dash the programmers dot cat forward slash dog wait, underscore. Which, wait, which slash is it exactly? So anyway, just Google bus factor and libraries. It'll probably come right up, but, um, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting project where it basically goes through and it says, here are the number of dependent releases for this project versus the number of contributors to that project. Right. And so the idea here is that these projects are very heavily used, but they have very few contributor contributors. And so, um, some of these, like as I'm scrolling through, I've never seen before. And some of them I go, Oh yeah, I totally use this a bunch. And so it might be an interesting way to sort of go in and maybe help some people out and see, you know, Oh wow, this is actually something that could use, you know, some help because there's a ton of issues and, um, you know, this contributor is, uh, or this, you know, developer is obviously a little bit overwhelmed and some might just be running perfectly fine, but those are kind of two, uh, two quick ways to get in. Um, I mean, I, I agree with Sean. I think most of my open source contributions are just when I find a bug and I am, I am working on some sort of project either professionally or personally, and then I can try to go in and, and make a change, but that might require too much context. And so the develop. The, the, I think the common phrase why everyone goes, oh, we'll just start with documentation patches isn't because we like we don't trust you to work in the code or we don't think that you'd be able to actually help because it's definitely not true. I think it's just an easier way for you to get comfortable with a project or an ecosystem of projects to be able to go in and make more substantial code-based changes. Um, and so, you know, your day-to-day life as a professional developer might or should really involve a, a large amount of documentation. So I do think that's a skill that you could very easily point out at an interview, you know, um, if you're lacking a large amount of code. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree going to work on some of these projects or gems um, that you're using right now in that project that you mentioned uh, might be a great way to sort of see, all right, yep, I can make a couple of PRs here to make an actual difference in these existing uh, open source projects. Those are good tips, Kyle. Oh man, I've been saving I'm very them impressed for two with weeks. Us. <laughs> exactly. They were excellent. Uh, uh, so you inspired me to give a specific technical piece of advice uh, too, which is uh, it took me way longer than I uh, than I think is reasonable to figure out that you can bundle open name of gem to open up anything in your gem file, which like is like ridiculous that I didn't realize that for a year or two. But, um, so for example, like let's say JSON API resources, a library that I contribute to a lot and is like quite in the middle of a number of apps that I'm working on right now. If, uh, 
you know, if I wanted to take a look at the code in JSON API resources as I'm working on the Rails app that it's uh, being used in, if I just type bundle open JSON API dash resources, it'll open up, you know, that library in or the the version of that library that is in my gem file dot lock in my code editor. And the reason that I really like that is that um, a lot of the the path to me contributing to something um, starts there, right? Like something's going, like I'm using the, the, uh, the library. I'd like to see how a method, you know, like, like I want to take a look at a method that I'm using or the documentation. Like there's something I want to take a deeper look at. So I just bundle open it, um, search for what I'm looking for. And then sometimes I find that, Oh, okay. It doesn't support something that I'm interested in or the documentation's missing or whatever. And then find my way from there to forking it and patching it and PRing it. Um, so like knowing that workflow, if you didn't already, uh, it's a good one. Is that a command you knew like day one and I'm the idiot for taking like years to figure it out? No, no. Cause there used to be a gem before bundler. Didn't there? I, I vaguely remember there being a gem that did that. Do you remember that or not really? No, I don't remember. Okay, there used to be a gem <laughs> that did Obviously that. not, because I was, I was so slow <laughs> to even figure it out. Uh, yeah, I think I like would go and spelunk for the directory. Um, it's not like that's that hard, but it felt so stupid when I learned how to do it. Anyways, all right, we've got one last sponsor, and then we should uh, wrap the show. So uh, Thanks for your question, week, by the way. You send more oh, questions yeah. in. That was awesome. You know what? I actually remember the end now of what he closes with, and I think I think we owe it to Colin to uh, play the end of his little quip clip. So one second. Topic number five: How do you go about marketing yourself <laughs> for freelance work and start getting paid to do web development to get that professional experience? Thanks, guys. Those were just a few questions that I could think of off the top of my head. And just a little shameless plug, if you want to check out my website, you can go to colinrupert.com slash blog and see some of the stuff I'm writing about, or look me up on Twitter at Colin Rupert, or on GitHub as Colin Rupert. Thanks. There we go. There we go. So that's actually the punchline in all of this. You know, you uh, you took the trouble, Colin, to chat with us on uh, online and come up with good questions, and now you get your ad on the show <laughs> for <laughs> colinrupert.com. <laughs> So thanks to him, uh, uh, for asking the questions. Thanks, Colin. And, uh, anyone else that wants to send in your questions, uh, do so. We'd love to feature you on a future show. Okay. Let me uh, tell you a little bit about CodeShip again, and we can, uh, get towards the finish line. So CodeShip, uh, has sponsored the show once again. I want to thank them for that. They're a continuous, uh, uh, delivery service, uh, focused on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with their free plan today. They just launched organizations. You can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. You can maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and team with CodeShip's new organizations plan. So go to CodeShip.com slash five by five Ruby. That's codechip.com slash five by five Ruby. You'll get 20% off any premium plan for the next three months. If you use that code, I uh, also want to thank them for partnering with me on uh, API first training. 
we've got a number of people signed up. It's going to be next week, the end of the week. Um, really looking forward to it. So if you are, uh, uh, considering attending and haven't decided to come yet, come join us, uh, API first dot training. What are you waiting for? By the way? Yeah. Right. Right. You get to chat with me for three days. All right. I think that it's bad luck to end on a sponsorship, so we need to we need to bring it home. Uh, <laughs> bring it home. Topic. <laughs> how was your How was your trip? It was great. Um. Yeah. So uh, it was great. If uh, if you're going to be in the San Francisco area on October first and second, GitHub is doing a conference called GitHub Universe, of which I will be speaking at. You should definitely come out. It's going to be a good old fashioned hoot nanny. I should have. I don't know if I could with the girls, but you know, being little and having to take another trip, but I should have coordinated to go to that. Yeah, I mean, just come in on Wednesday and fly home on Saturday, and have, bring them with you. It'll just be a, a hoot nanny. <laughs> bring them with me. Yeah, why not? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but never too early to learn how to code. <laughs> What's the focus of the? Like, like, what's the purpose of the um, the event? Sure. So it's basically around right, like how to build software, you know. And so it's 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 a it's a kind of conference slash festival around, you know, how do you build code? You know, how are you you know writing it? How do you're collaborating on it? You know, how do you overcome the sort of social problems, technical challenges with collaborating, and then you know deployment? How do you get your code out? How do you collect feedback on it? How do you make sure people still love your software? And it's a pretty diverse uh, list of speakers. I mean, there are a handful and a half of GitHub people, but there's a lot of other people um, speaking uh, as well. Um, Is it it programmers that are attending or a sort of mix of programmers and non-programmers? Definitely a mix. Um, Programmers, product managers, designers, um, founders. uh, uh, It's definitely a mix. It's a technical conference, and so you might be in a session that could potentially go a little bit over your head. But uh, overall, um, a lot of the discussion is going to be much more about, you know, the sort of ins and outs of working on a team that build software and not necessarily the nitty gritty of, you know, why are you using Ruby 2.2 instead of 1.9? You know, um, there's going to be a, a good mix of both. And so, uh, and from what I know about the experience of the conference and everything, it's definitely a great, uh, I would highly recommend it uh, to kind of come out and meet people. Um, uh, it reminds me of some of the conferences I've gone to in the past that no longer run, um, but are much more about, you know, let's just get a bunch of really smart people together who really love what they do. And, and there's talks and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm only plugging all this because that was a major reason why I was out in San Francisco last week. And so, um, highly recommend it. Follow me on Twitter, uh, at K Daigle for, uh, various and sundry discount codes as those become available to me. Cool. Well, I think that we should wrap with that. It sounds like a good time. I would, uh, I would attend if I could. I don't think I can. Teresa would love to go to San Francisco too, but I don't know. Traveling with twins, that could be a thing. <laughs> I hear it is a thing. <laughs> Traveling with one's a thing. I know. <laughs> I'm stoked about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Jamie's not going, is she? No, but, uh, our family is going to be going to, the magical world of Disney after Thanksgiving oh, that's right. for our first big family vacation via aeroplane. 
Oh man! So hold on to your hats. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. The, the goofy hats. You're gonna get. Uh, oh get no! Cooper ears. We're getting ears. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you mean like Mickey ears? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. Well, if you'd like to connect with uh, me on Twitter to uh, to get a, a coupon code for Kyle's conference, feel free. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm barely I'm barely known on Twitter. So, oh, I had a fun uh, fun thing tweeted at me on that point yesterday. Someone couldn't remember my name, like my like Sean, my real name, mm-hmm. but knew my Twitter handle. So they went to twitter.com slash barely known to figure out who I was, which I loved. I feel like my life is it's going things are coming together <laughs> it's like my hope in the first place that i'd be you know more known for an ironic twitter handle than i was for my my actual name <laughs> i don't think i'm there yet anyways uh good episode sir yeah i'm uh i'm k daigle on twitter github and emails so hit me up send more questions and we'll answer them next week all right see you adios